I'd like to acknowledge Australia's First Nation people as the traditional custodians of the land, and for this episode in particular, the Gunai Kurnai people. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. It's always very satisfying for me to see that one of my biggest markets for my French wines here is um, Paris restaurants. Um, To have that as one of my most important markets just feels like the French accept what I do and and they're, they're happy with the Australian girl making Pinot. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Jane Eyre is a micro-negociant. She is also an Aussie, making more than just finger waves in the world of wine. Originally hailing from Gippsland, Jane has been turning heads with her seemingly effortless wines of Burgundy. Hi Jane, thanks for joining me. Hi, (laughs) thanks for having me on. It's wonderful to have you on. Now, you're incredibly busy, and I am going to ask you once again to tell me the story of how you came to be one of the very lucky few expats making wine in Burgundy. Oh, um, didn't have a plan. No. Um, I left school and sort of fell into hairdressing and did that for 10 years, uh, and was working in a great salon in Melbourne, but I got to a point where I realised I didn't want to do it for the rest of my life and I actually had no idea what I wanted to do. And I was talking to a client one day about a restaurant I'd been to or a wine I'd had and I realised that that was something that interested me. So I had a bit of a think about two days and decided that I wanted to be a winemaker. So was going overseas with my boyfriend at the time and decided that it would be a good chance to do harvest to see whether I actually um, liked what I decided to do. And one of my clients, her husband is Jamie Oliver, Jeremy Oliver, not Jamie Oliver, and they just happened to have friends in Burgundy. I don't think at that point in time I ever knew where Burgundy was. So that was back in 98. So went and travelled around Europe and then um, turned up in in Burgundy in in September and had no idea what I had myself in for and absolutely loved it. I worked for a fabulous family that I'm still very much in contact with and just had a great time. So went back to Australia, enrolled uh, at winemaking at Charles Sturt University, got a job at Prince Wine Store in St Kilda Um, and then just kept going backwards and forwards to Burgundy. And the wonderful thing about the Prince Wine Store is that you do lots of tastings and lots of dinners with lots of amazing winemakers. And so for me, it was absolutely fantastic to find places to do vintage. So, you know, we did a dinner with Vanya Cullen and and I said, you know, can I go and, can I come and do harvest with you? So I ended up at Cullen at Adirangi, Felton Road, um, and then I left Australia in 2003. I went and worked for Ernie Lozen in the Mosul in Germany, also someone I'd met at the Prince, and then eventually found my way back to Burgundy and, and have been here since 2004 permanently. So for everybody out there that wants to make wine in Burgundy, it's seemingly simple. You say, I want to Easy. be a winemaker. <laughs> <laughs> I want to work in Burgundy. <laughs> I can't believe that, um, I mean, to work in Burgundy, you know, the creme de la creme and to say, you know, we're going over there. I think I'll just try and work vintage. I mean, maybe it was a good thing that you didn't actually really know that much because do you think that you would have kind of, to use the colloquial saying, but had the balls to just go in there and, and ask to, to do vintage? I don't know. Um, I don't know. It's 
yeah, and my niece is over here at the moment and she's she's studying winemaking and, and it's been a little more challenging for her. So I just I reflect and think that I was actually incredibly lucky because um, the first the first place I worked for, I actually went back there three times and they said, you know, you've, you've got to move on. And so they found um, work with me with friends of theirs in Merceau and so I went and worked for Domain um, Matro and that's actually where I met Dominic Lafont and um, who's quite a well-known winemaker over here. And so I worked for Dominic the following year in 2001 and then when I was in Germany, I came back to um, to Burgundy and saw him and said, look, I, I've left Australia. I really want to make wine here. Have you got any work for me or, or do you know anyone? And he said, oh, the paperwork's a nightmare. It, it probably, you know, I'd really like to help you, but I don't think I can. And so I'd actually organised to go back to Australia. And then just before Christmas, his secretary sent me an email saying, come for three months. And she helped me with the paperwork at that time. I was a student, so I could work here as you know, sort of under a student visa, and that just turned into a year. And then from there, Dominic recommended me to the De Montes, and um, and so it was just I think got my foot in the door, and then just worked hard. And I just think it's that thing that when people see what you want to do and you're determined enough to do it, people find you know you find people that want to help you. So. Um, I, I, I think that I was, I was lucky in that respect. And then when I started my negotiant business in 2011, it was actually Benjamin LaRue that helped me. And he said, you know, when are you going to start making your own wine? And I remember trying to work out how to set up a negotiant business. And I went into, um, the Chambre de Commerce here and, this very nice lady helped me and she said, okay, well, um, you need to see these people. And I, I walked out of that meeting with an A4 piece of paper front to back full of names and phone numbers of people I needed to contact. And I just, I just didn't know where to start. <laughs> so that, that took a while and, and the, so the local um, office here, it's not really customs, but they, they – um, manage all the the wine grape sales, and you, you need to get a particular business number from them to be able to operate. And I went in there three times, and the guy just kept kicking me out. It was like, you, seriously, you're you know, you blonde Australian that that doesn't speak very good French can't really be serious. Um, and I had to get Dominic to actually come in there and help me explain to them that I was serious. And eventually, eventually got everything set up. But um, that that was a bit of a challenge for a while there. Oh, I can't even imagine. What, in terms of language, how was your French when you were over there? Because I imagine that that is the gateway into being taken seriously is that you really need to have a good understanding of the language. I couldn't speak a word. I didn't, I never studied French and I arrived and I couldn't speak a word. I was lucky that the first family, well, most people over here speak English. The first year that I was here, I was actually working at the winery with Stuart Anderson and Stuart is um, the gentleman that started Balgowney a long time ago and he had fluent French, so that was helpful. But I was just lucky that it's a job that you don't have to have a, a degree in French to, to be able to do your job. So I managed to get away for a very long time with having very rudimentary French. Um, so I think in you know how the friends that that 
you need language for for whatever line of work they've got. And I think in that case, I was actually it was a lot easier for me um, without being proficient in French. And and if you ask my fifteen year old daughter, she still thinks I can't speak properly. <laughs> <laughs> well, it must really, it says a lot. I think about perhaps you as a person because I think that maybe rather than just hearing what you had to say, but people would have obviously seen how earnest you were, how dedicated, maybe how hardworking you were, and then willing to go out of their way to help you out. But it really does sound like a story that's hard to believe, um, but I'm so glad that it's true. Take me back to Australia. When you're working at uh, Prince Wine Store, you worked with Philip Rich, who's one of the legends of the Australian wine industry. What was your biggest takeaway from your time working with him? Oh, uh, Philip, and I'm still, um, he's actually the reason I'm coming to Australia in two weeks because he's invited me to speak on a panel with him at the Mornington Pinot celebration, which is a massive honour. When I first started working at the Prince, we would do stock take every week and we we used to have um, these cabinets downstairs in the St Kilda store that were individual bottles, mostly burgundy, at that point in time with unpronounceable names. and. Philip used to sit at his computer and I'd be trying to pronounce um, the, these French names and just get them horribly wrong and he'd be yelling at me. And um, it's funny now that my French is maybe a little better than his today, but my my time at the Prince was invaluable because there was such a strong wine culture between um, all the businesses that the Van Handels owned. And so we would do all these amazing educational tastings with all the wine team and Philip it was so amazingly generous and enthusiastic with his time and his knowledge that if you wanted to learn something about wine Philip would spend the time um, encouraging you and, and sharing all of all of his information and all his knowledge with you so that taught me what great wines were and how to taste great wines and um, continually you know, if, if something happens or I do, I do well, I always call Philip because he was very much a mentor and he was there at the beginning when I really knew nothing. <laughs> so that's why stock takes are so important, aren't they? Because you do need to look at those bottles and work out and think, where is this from? And what <laughs> I love, I love that story. Was there ever a particular moment or one kind of um, memory that you have where you remember that whether you were in New Zealand or, or in Margaret River where you thought, this is 100% what I'm going to do. I'm going to completely change my career and this is what I'm going to dedicate. Was there a moment or was it a, a collective kind of lots of different moments? Oh, I think the first vintage in Burgundy. I just loved it and just went, yeah, this this is what I want to do. This is great. The Probably the one of the hardest decisions was when I decided to leave the Prince because I was managing the St Kilda store and they were building the South Melbourne store and I had a great job. You get to you, you're in wine because you love wine, and I had to make a decision as to whether I would just continue the path of staying staying in retail or making the jump and and actually going and, and working for one particular person making you know making wine and that was you know that was actually really difficult and Philip was the one that said look you can't manage the store and go away for 3 months every year for vintage um so that was the thing that that pushed me um but no from the very first job I had I just I just loved it and in terms of uh, your experience in Australia and, and then in France, did you ever think 
Was there ever a time where you had to make an adjustment in terms of kind of a hurdle that you had to get through in the two approaches of two very different countries? Did you have to kind of, you know, change your outlook or was it a cultural change when you kind of, you know, cemented yourself in Burgundy? Oh, I think there's definitely a cultural change when you move into another into another country. Um but as far as changing things, I think that I learned to make wine in Burgundy because this was the first place I did vintage and this is a place that, you know, I've done every vintage here since 98 except for 2003 when I was in Germany. And the people that I worked for in Australia and New Zealand, uh, if they're Pinot producers, you know, they've all worked in um, in Bur- a lot of people have worked in Burgundy and, and have come over here. So I don't think that the the approach is necessarily that much different. Uh, um, certainly, how I make wine in in Burgundy is the same as how I make wine in in Australia. Um, so the biggest thing is, I think when I first moved over here, I just thought, oh, it's actually not that much different apart from the language. But you realise the longer you are somewhere. I think the more Australian I, f- I feel, the longer I live in France. <laughs> and I want to talk a little bit about kind of your approach to winemaking. Expressing terroir and sight is obviously a huge part of Burgundian winemaking. But where does winemaking style come into play and how do you approach wi- winemaking style? Uh, I think Pinot Noir as a, as a variety, because it's predominantly what I make, is uh, it's a qu- technically a cool climate grape so because of the fact that the fruit's often the limit of maybe being right there's a lot of transparency in um, the different sites and burgundy because of the nature of the way it's set up and the parcels are so small you're often dealing with you know I make 10 different wines over here from small parcels and so you can really see the differences depending on how much sunlight that particular vineyard gets, uh, how far up the hill it is, if it's a little bit cooler, if it's a little bit warmer, how much sunlight it gets, the soil, um, the the clone, how old the vines are, all those things. And it's not just for Pinot, but I think maybe especially a variety like Pinot um, very much shows quite clearly um, the individual places that the vineyards are located. And that's whether it's Burgundy or Australia or where, or New Zealand, Um and I think that's the thing that's so interesting is that you can have one variety that has so many different expressions. And so I guess that's the thing as a Pinot producer um, that you concentrate on and, and it's the same with the Australian wines. The four, the four that I make from four different regions uh, very clearly show where they're from. Yes, absolutely true. Now, you make some wine or you have made wine with William Downey in, in Gippsland, your Gippsland home. Uh, but like you said, you make wines throughout Victoria as well. What do you enjoy most about making Australian Pinot Noir? Oh, I love working with my friends. <laughs> to be pretty, I, the Australian chapter started because I used to go home once a year, um, normally in February when Burgundy basically sits in a cloud of fog. <clears throat> and it's about two degrees outside currently. So I would go home for a summer holiday and see family and friends and try and go to the beach. And Bill said to me one year, do you want to come and help me for vintage? And I'll give you some fruit. You can make your own wine. I went, okay. So that happened in 2012 and 
um, I really wanted to make a Gippsland because that's where I grew up. It's also where Bill grew up. And Bill being Bill, he said, well, look, you can have this fruit, this fruit, this fruit. And that particular year, I really liked the Mornington. So that's sort of why I started with Mornington and, and then added the Gippsland the second year. Um, but it's just, it's so great to go home and where I make my wines uh, with incredibly talented generous friends so that's the bit I love I, I get to see different regions um, the approach a little, is a little bit different in Australia because just the rules and regulations aren't the same so you have a little bit more freedom and so people experiment a little bit more and I love I love that because it's maybe not quite the same here I, I really appreciate seeing all the different um, incarnations of your wine but I have to say you know they always do tell a really good story of place, but they have a harmony and a cohesion of style that I find that just kind of is threaded throughout. And I think that's what in a restaurant, it made them always really quite easy to sell, I found. But also you discover that kind of style as you taste them. And and what I've noticed from people writing about you is that they often talk a little bit about you know, your approach and your style, which I think is really interesting because it's not always super apparent with a winemaker and like like we said we often talk mostly about sight and and perhaps vintage conditions so I think there's a big part of you in your wines and I think that that's a really wonderful thing to celebrate oh I I think as a winemaker whatever you decide to do whether you are a little bit more hands-on in the approach, whether you work the ferments a little bit more. Every decision that you make of something to do or not to do has an impact on what the wine ends up being in the end. So as a Pinot producer, you're very much about trying to express what that site gives, gives that wine. And so I guess my approach has been a little bit more hands-off. But by by doing that, that gives the wines a particular style. So I think that we all in some way impart a little bit of our personalities into our wines with what we do or what we don't do. And, again, I just think that um, perhaps because I'm making wine in two very different places, well, in five very different places really if you do because it's quite spread out in in Australia Um, but maybe it shows through a little more because I've got wines from a lot of different places from the same grape variety and maybe you would see that with other people's wines too if, if they were doing the same thing. Yeah, that's very true. You've also made wine in Jura and Beaujolais. So, like we said, a very busy bee. How does the culture differ in those regions and what's remarkable about those regions to you? Uh, um, Burgundy is very much in a bubble at the moment. I feel incredibly fortunate that given the increases of prices, that the grapes that I have to buy just keep getting more expensive and I still have a clientele that, that buy them. Um, going down to perhaps Beaujolais and the Jura people, it's not quite as easy. Um, so people sometimes can be maybe a little more open and willing to help. Um, my grower in Beaujolais is a young guy who inherited his domain from from his dad and he actually came out to Australia in 2017 and did vintage with um, with us at Bill's Place and that was great because it means he got to see a whole new um, 
you know, a whole new place um, that he would that he'd never seen before. And so it's really nice to have the exchange um, that it's not just me going down once a year and buying grapes from somebody and giving them a check. It's like, great, thanks very much. See you next year. So um, it's it's just nice that you actually have a little bit more of an exchange. Um, Beaujolais, because the parcels are a little bit bigger, it's actually still easier to get fruit down down there than what it is in Burgundy. Um, Jura has become increasingly hard because it's very much the flavour of the month. Um, so, you know, I'd like to do more up there for the moment. It's been a one-off, but it's something that each year I continually I continually look for. And um, that was actually made up at, a, up at a winery in the Jura. And, again, the, the winemaker was incredibly generous with his time and um, I used to go backwards and forwards sort of once a month. <clears throat> to check the wine. So that that was a fantastic experience as well. So it's um it's maybe it's just the, the food and wine industry. I mean there's hospitality in there. Um and so many people are very generous and just by the nature of what we do, we make we make wine and wines to be enjoyed with the meal. So you often sit down and and you know somebody cooks something and people bring some wine and there's there's a real exchange and that is so much a part of the business of what we do and also one of the very enjoyable aspects of it. Mm. And it's lovely to hear that, that that exists in all those different regions because, you know, everybody's proud of what they do and and passionate about the food and, and wine that's produced in the area. So it's so nice to hear that you're enjoying it while you're doing it, not just working. You were recently named Winemaker of the Year in the Grand Prix Awards of La Revue de Vin de France. A huge honour and up against much larger negotiants. How did that moment feel? Oh, surreal. Um, yeah, that that was um, that was quite a surprise. Um, the categories are a little bit different over here, so I actually got negotiant of the year not winemaker of the year because a winemaker of the year sort of goes to it's more a domain. So a domain being someone who actually owns their own vineyards, whereas a negotiant you don't necessarily own your own vineyards, you buy grapes. Um, so I wasn't expecting it at all. I mean, I submit my, my wines every year to the RVF. So they do a, a monthly magazine and also the guide is an annual guide. I guess our equivalent in Australia is the James Halliday guide. So um, it's one of the more respected um, wine wine guides and when they came down and they, they do, it's almost like a Michelin guide that they give the domain stars. And so I'd gone from one star to two stars and so they came down and um, one of the journalists said to me, oh, you know why we're here? And I just said, oh, I assume you're probably doing an article about the maybe the people that have got an extra star this year. And he's like, no, you're, you're our negotiant of the year. And I just went, yeah, you're joking. <laughs> um, it's a massive thing because my business is 10 years old. It doesn't make a lot of wine compared to some of you know, the big negotiants um, out there, not just in Burgundy, but in, in all of France. So it, it was just a, it, it, it was, a, it is a huge honor that they gave it to me. Um, and you know, it really changed changed the business. It it, it helps so much just to um, you know with, with people's interest in in the brand and um, just also um, you know there's a lot of there's a lot of stiff competition out there for that. So um, 
I don't believe for one second that I'm the best negotiator in France. But um, no, it's a, it's it's a massive honour that that those journalists who taste an incredible amount of wine um, decided that that was what they wanted to give me. It's truly incredible and congratulations I, I felt a bit emotional when I read that I was like oh my god that's just truly truly awesome and like you said I can't even imagine your, your reaction or that's just incredible but speaking of kind of uh, negotiants talk to me in terms of numbers just for all the kind of listeners out there what are some of the negotiants capable of making and what are you kind of outputting each year uh, it varies. Um, I started in 2011 with five barrels of one wine, so roughly 1,500 bottles. Um, this year we made nearly 28,000 bottles here across across Beaujolais and, and, and the Cote d'Or. Uh, if you're looking at um, Louis Latour, I mean, I think they make something like 5 million bottles. So it's slightly different scale, <laughs> um, and then and then you sort of got everyone in, everyone in between. Uh, there's a lot more micro negotiants that are that are around now than perhaps what there were when I started ten years ago, um, and truly, it, it I don't know how they actually managed to make any money because the fruit is a lot more expensive. There's a lot of competition to to secure good contracts um and then you've also got to build build the brand and and have you know people that want to buy your wines incredible talk to me about living in bone and living with you know your daughter what do you do you have a a favorite restaurant that you go to what is your life like when you perhaps have a day off and you want to spend it doing something for yourself and not uh slaving away making wine Oh, a day off. <laughs> um, oh, look, it, it all depends. My day off this weekend was actually, it was the, the Saint Vincent, which is the patron saint of the vines. And it's a it's a big deal here in Burgundy and, um, well, actually, you know, in all of France. And each village, they have a little wooden statue of the Saint Vincent. And it goes... It, it moves around to a different winemaker each year. So, so this this weekend, Sunday, actually, we, we went off. Um, we actually went to church, which is something I don't do very often. And then there was a procession of the little the little wooden statue of the Saint Vincent that um, that went from one domain to the new domain, which actually Benjamin Larue's got this year. And so um, this weekend involved um, an aperitif and a very a very very long lunch. That's um, when when you get together with friends here, lunches generally finish at about seven o'clock in the evening. <laughs> um, so my, my life really does, it revolves around food and wine so much. Um, my favourite restaurant in Bone would be, it's, it's a difficult one, but would probably be Carve Madeleine. But if I went a little further out down to Tornu, which is heading towards Macon or Terrasse is, is my absolute favourite restaurant in France. Um, and it's nice that it's not too far from from home. But, um, you know, Stella, we might go shopping or I try and sometimes drag her off to a museum or, or um, to the ballet just for a little bit of culture. And, and that's the wonderful thing here is that there is the, the history of Europe. There is so much to see. So sometimes if you've got a weekend off and you want to do something, it's like, oh, where, where do I want to go? Because there's just so much choice. 
the beach is not an option for the weekend, unfortunately. And that's something I miss. <laughs> I was that might that leads me to my next question was actually what is the first thing that you do other than see your friends when you come home and make more amazing wine? What's something that you rush to do when you get home to Australia? Go and have an Asian meal somewhere, um, whether it's Thai or, or Japanese, um, and we try and get to the beach. Um, but yeah, it, it's definitely the the diversity of cuisine that we have in Melbourne is something that I miss. Oh, and coffee! I go and try and find a good coffee. Perfect. Well, yeah, you're not you're not hard pressed in Melbourne to to do that. You don't have to seek that out too far. <laughs> Uh, Jane, do you have a specific site or wine that you particularly are fond of making or you really look forward to each year? Oh, that's such a hard one. I always say that when people ask what my favourite wine is, it's trying to pick what your favourite, who your favourite child is. I only have one, so there's no choice for me there. Um... Oh, it's so hard to answer that question. I suppose it also depends on vintage, doesn't it, as well? So something's going to look different each year depending on what what you're being given. And that's and that's the great thing is that you do get the you know the the, the different challenges with the different vintages. Um, <sighs> okay, is there a wine that you find difficult to make each year that gives you a challenge? Oh, they all do. <laughs> they, they, they all do. I'm, I'm lucky that I work with such great growers that – and that's the really important thing is I work with good growers so they sell me good fruit. Um, so it actually makes my life quite easy. It's, um, it's you know, if, if you've got a grower that maybe doesn't look after the vineyard so well, that's when things become challenging because the, the quality of the fruit's not the same. Um, but I try and avoid – those kind of situations. I mean, these these warmer years have probably been more of a challenge across the board because Pinot is supposed to be, you know, cool climate, very aromatic, whereas with, with these warmer years you're battling um, higher alcohols, lower acidity and, and really trying to keep some finesse in your wine. So trying to rethink um, what, you know, what you can do to counteract that has um, – you know, it has been interesting and, and that sort of led me down much more down the whole bunch track. Um, but that that's definitely um, one of the challenges and, and that's clearly, you know, not just here, that's in most of the winemaking regions of the world that the, the warmer years pose different um, different challenges. And what's next? What's coming up for you and your brand in the future? What can we get excited about? Oh, hopefully the new wines um, that, are, <laughs> that are coming out. I mean, I'm always looking for um, something new. So continually looking in the Jura um, to, to make another wine there, um, trying to make maybe a little bit more Chardonnay here in Burgundy. So there's um, there's a couple more of those coming, coming along. But um, it's just... Um, it's great working with the grapes I know every year, but just it's nice to cast the, the net a little wider as well because that just keeps things a little a little more interesting. But you do get to a point where you can't be everywhere at the same time. And do, where is, do you, you obviously sell your wines in Australia and you sell your wines within France as well, but are you other, other areas as well, other countries that are buying your wines, any places that have surprised you? 
Um, I think I have most of the places that I want now. Um, when I look at the figures at the end of each year, um, it's always very satisfying for me to see that one of my biggest markets for my French wines here is um, Paris restaurants. That's um, that, that's a big thing for me. In the beginning, I didn't sell any wine in Paris. Um, to have that as one of my most important markets just feels like the French accept what I do and, and they're, they're happy with the Australian girl making Pinot. Um, so that's, um, that, that's really a big, that's a big thing for me. Um, and also bringing my Australian wines over here and, and having, um, having the French buy, um, buy the Australian wines and, and enjoying them and being surprised by them. It's like, oh, they're not these big alcoholic tannic wines that we thought they, you know, we thought Australian wines were, that they're actually these very elegant, sometimes lower in alcohol than the Burgundies. Um, so that, um, that's, you know, that, that's taken a little bit more work, but that, that's actually very satisfying to, to get the Australian wines into the market over here. Yeah, and I mean, what a compliment to have, like you said, your wines on Parisian restaurants. And like you said, it is, it really is a compliment that they, that they, because there is so much wine out there as well, isn't there? And then, then the competition is in particularly hard. Um, and in terms of cork and Stelvin, you use a bit of both. What's your consideration there? <laughs> I'm a fence sitter. <laughs> uh. Uh, in Australia, it's just easier to get your wines bottled using screw caps and stelvins just because I don't know whether you what the percentage is, but I always sort of quote 95% of Australian wines seem to now be under screw cap. Um, so just to find a, a bottling machine that's equipped to maybe do both or one or the other, it, it's generally easier to find, find screw cap. And I'm perfectly happy to put all the wines in screw cap. Um, over here in Burgundy, I actually have, I use screw cap for some of the Beaujolais and then I use DM, which is the composite cork and natural cork because just when I think I'm going to put all the wines into DM, someone tells you a story about something and it's like, oh, I'll still keep a little bit of cork and, and then you have, a, it's very rare, but you come across, whether it's mine or, or another bottle of corked wine, it's like, oh, that's why I don't want to use cork, but. I spend a lot of money on my corks. Um, I have very few problems with them. Um, so I think in an ideal world, I would actually like to put my wines under, not all of them, but um, some of them under screw cap, Stelvin and cork and people to buy a case of 12 and then you get you know, four bottles of each because the closures are all different. And I don't think today one is necessarily better than the other but a wine will age differently under the three closures and I think that's interesting and then it's a personal taste which one which one do you prefer but um they I think you know they, they do different things for different wines and even for the same wines they the wines will age differently under the different closures and that's interesting and I, and I still haven't been able to say categorically yes I think this one's the best and I'm going to do all my wines using this closure well, that makes a lot of sense. You're a considerate fence sitter. I'll give you that. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you must see it in in the restaurant as well. Um, some wines, you know, seem to go better under under Stelvin, and also people um, people are funny about 
maybe sort of like their burgundies or their bordeaux that if you put your grand cru burgundy under screw cap it would make it a hard sell yeah absolutely and and i think you know to coin a phrase that Amanda Yolletboy use, always uses is the ingress of oxygen is is very different depending on the cork style and they just, they change and develop differently. And so I, I agree with you. I think that it depends on the wine. It depends on when you're drinking it um, or how long you want to sell it for. And there isn't really just one, it's not really just black and white. It depends on the producer and what they want to do and what their, their results are. So, uh, and I'm, and I'm glad that you, that you, have expressed that too because you know it is all personal and like you said there's a lot of those decisions that you have to make and you you need to give them consideration so yeah very well said jane i'm curious to know if you could only drink three beverages for the rest of your life only three what would they be and why now i've been thinking a little bit about this now i'm assuming that wine counts as one beverage and does that cover all of them, or or, do, or did I have to get specific and say no? I only want to drink. It had to be three. It could be Pinot Noir, um, because otherwise it would definitely be Champagne, a, gr- a grower Champagne. Um, clearly, clearly Pinot. But if it, if it covers all wine, then you know I'm I'm okay there because it gives me lots of choice. And then the third one. Oh, it's very much a toss-up between whether I would drink margaritas for the rest of my life or gin and tonic. But um, because I'm not a beer drinker and during harvest when everyone else is drinking beer because everyone's fed up with wine, um, I haven't managed to to go down that track so often. A a nice gin and tonic, um, you know, at the end of the day is, is always quite nice and refreshing. So they would probably be my picks. Unless I have to be more specific. No, we could drink together anytime. I love all of those <laughs> options. <laughs> Jane, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. I love your wines. I thoroughly enjoyed selling them to other people because I could see um, joy in people's faces when they drank them, which is always so nice. And um, I didn't have one you know, moment where uh, anyone was disappointed with your wines, which is really lovely. And so thank you for making the time. Best of luck with the new release of the wines. I know that they will sell out in no time. That's the problem with your wines. There's just never enough. It's a good problem to have. (laughs) It is a good problem to have. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, I hope that we speak again soon. Yeah, thank you so much. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Stay tuned for more stories from the world of wine and drinks. Listen in every Thursday on your podcast app. Follow us on Instagram at overaglasspod and contact us at overaglass at deepintheweeds.com.au.